Hello everyone, and welcome to Seminary for the Rest of Us. As always, I am your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters. Now, usually I script these intros, and the reason why I script these intros is because I tend to ramble, and I'm not really good about hitting all the points I want to hit, but this one is a little bit different and I feel like I should add some personal context to this episode because these past two weeks have been unlike anything I have ever experienced in my entire life. So these past two or three weeks uh, my spouse and I have been trying to move mostly because being uh, cooped up in a really small one-bedroom apartment uh, was not, has not been conducive to our health uh, as individual introverts, um, and it's really hard to function when our only work-from-home space is also the living room and also the kitchen area. Uh, so we have been had been figuring out how to get out of a current lease and to find a new place uh, that would give us you know two bedrooms so each of us could have our own little uh, introvert space back okay so moving so uh, the pandemic is all is obviously the context uh, for this but also uh, while we were in the process of finding another place to live um, national outrage and grief sparked over the lynching of George Floyd, uh, and rightly so. However, uh, we did not predict, that is my spouse and I, did not predict that the neighborhood that we were currently living in, in the city, uh, would become an epicenter uh, for the city's protests. And uh, if we had been a little bit more up to speed on our neighborhood's history, we probably wouldn't have been so surprised. But in the middle of packing up and moving last week, uh, our neighborhood uh, was essentially the location for a showdown between uh, the police and peaceful protesters, uh, example. Uh, so last Monday, uh, we were in our apartment and my spouse says to me, hey, uh, do you smell that? And I poke my head out of our bedroom and I smell something that smells like burning rubber, burning plastic, something like that. I walk, continue to walk out of the bedroom and I realize that my nose is burning and my throat is burning and I'm like, ugh, this is tear-ass. Um, so I throw my mask on and we both throw our masks on and we kind of lock ourselves, well not lock ourselves, but we like sh get into the bedroom close the door because that's the only real room in the apartment. Uh, we leave the window open because if we close the window we will essentially have been trapping the tear gas inside our space. Um, and so after that, uh, every single night after that we kind of worried each night like, oh no! Like, what are the police going to do this time? Because, you know, the protesters are not the problem here. The police are the police are the ones escalating things. Um, so that threw in a little bit of additional stress and on top of the stress of moving. So 
currently I am sitting on the floor of our new place uh, because I haven't got my new desk yet and I'm recording this intro, oh I don't know, several days later than I would if I were on schedule with uh, producing podcast episodes, but I, I don't feel bad for not putting out new content because I, I feel like last week was a, a good week to share and also regurgitate some of the things that I've been learning as far as systemic racism uh, over the past several years since uh, Ferguson. So, but I do have a new episode for y'all. It's episode 10. Yay! Episode 10, we made it! Um, And this conversation is a conversation I recorded back in the beginning of May. And I got to talk to D.L. Mayfield. Uh, For those of you who don't know, she is a writer and neighbor who neighbor, excuse me, who lives in Portland, Oregon. Her most recent book is The Myth of the American Dream: Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. And so this book came out last month uh, on May 4th, and I know DL has been on numerous podcast episodes since then, and I think a lot of them have been Uh, just solely talking about her new book, but I wanted to, yes, uh, talk about her new book, but not talk about it at the same time. Uh, I wanted to use her book as a launching pad for exploring, you know, some some of the ways that we read the Bible and how some of our uh, worldviews might affect the way we read the Bible. Um, So that's what we talked about. Uh, We talked about uh, D.L.'s journey in reading the Bible, and hopefully there will be something uh, for everyone here, and hopefully uh, some resources on continuing to unlearn uh, the ways we have read the Bible that might be harmful, and learn uh, new ways to read the Bible. So. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Send me a note to let me know how you're doing, and we'll catch you later. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, it's really great to have you, and I'm honestly a little pleasantly surprised that we were able to connect because I always get like these imposter syndrome type feelings when I'm writing to ask people if they'll come on my little newbie podcast, <laughs> especially if they're a published author. Uh, so I'm really glad we got to connect here. Yeah, I am very intrigued by your podcast, so I'm very, I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, So we're here uh, partially because you have a new book out uh, called The Myth of the American Dream, but I don't really want to talk about uh, the book's contents per se, although it's great. And people who are listening, if you haven't read my little review on it, go read it because I'm not going to rehash it here. Okay, so anyhow, uh, Danielle, I'm curious as to how the way you read, read and have read the Bible has changed as a result of uncovering the myths you present in the book, uh, which are autonomy, 
affluence, safety, and power. And the reason I'm asking is because a lot of people, um, including myself, we do read the Bible with like different assumed values in mind, um, including uh, some of those or maybe all of those. Um, and I'm thinking of how we tend to gloss over passages that uh, condemn wealth or wealthy people or how we apply our conceptions of autonomy to verses about community um, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures and so on. And we have to work uh, really hard in general uh, not to apply a lot of our own assumptions into reading any kind of religious text. Uh, so it's something we have to be constantly unlearning. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about your journey here, like how you grew up reading the Bible and what are some things that you learned about how you used to read the Bible and how you read the Bible now? Yeah, I think this is such a broad question. And <laughs> I, I want to, you know, maybe stop in, at some point and, and get your feedback on some of this stuff. But before we dive into, you know, the values I'm talking about in my new book, I do think it's important to talk about how you grow up in relationship to reading the Bible or, you know, whatever sacred text you grew up with. And I definitely come from a very specific community and culture, which is white American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad was a pastor. I was very literate in the Bible from an early age. And yeah, I, I think now looking back, right, we would call it Biblicism, right? This approach to the Bible that really valued it and valued taking it literally. But mm -hmm. underneath that, because it's just such an easy way to to look at it, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Like my dad says that to this day, you know, and <laughs> and and he thinks that is true. And what we have to kind of unpack is the reality that somebody taught us, you know, how to read and interpret those scriptures. And for me, the older I got, the more I realized, you know, it was only one certain type of person that we were supposed to listen to when it came to interpreting them. And that was, you know, white Protestant men. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I even went to Bible college and all this stuff. And if I look back at this, like, the syllabus, you know, from all the different classes, all my different, I, everybody had a major in Bible and theology. So that's what I did. And they were all white men. And this wasn't yep. that long ago. And this is in Portland, Oregon. And yeah, <laughs> I, I think the thing that's interesting is like, I didn't even notice it. You know, it did not cross my mind that that is even something to be questioned. I think at some point, everybody has to sort of struggle with do I actually believe what I say I believe? And so, you know, I, I had some of those crises happen later in life, uh, but I never really questioned who I was listening to when it came to the Bible. And I just knew that it was so, so, so important. However, I began to realize for people who talk about God all the time, like we still have an awful lot of problems <laughs> and, they, and they don't seem to be resolved by just like repeating various scriptures at each other, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of started to wonder, like, I want my life to actually be radically different. If we say that's what we want, then that's what I actually want, you know? And yes. it just wasn't happening. But it was kind of a weird thing to wonder as you're, like, in Bible college, reading the Bible all the time, and everybody's acting like they really get it. And I'm just like, none of us are acting like we get it, you know? Like, we're still really selfish and we still really hurt each other and we still live lives that don't 
take into account like other people, you know? Yeah. So, so it felt kind of weird. And I think that's where the seeds of really wondering where I fit into the stories of scripture started to come up. And, and I've shared this on a few other uh, podcasts recently, but I can really remember being in a class about um, the gospels. I think I only had one class, right? And uh, just being really freaked out as I read these stories and thinking to myself, if I was anybody in these stories, I would be one of the religious people that hated Jesus. Mm. Like it was so Mm. apparent to me with my, like, you know, I had this like quite the evangelical pedigree. I was homeschooled, pastor's Mm -hmm. kid, missionary wannabe, you know, volunteering with refugees in my own community, like all this stuff. And I'm like, I think I'm better than everybody. I think And I'm being told every day that I have all the absolute answers to God figured out, Um, which wouldn't that make me more like one of the religious people? But again, that loneliness of like, there's nobody I could even process that with because we were all Mm. supposed to think of ourselves as people who obeyed Jesus and would have accepted him immediately if he suddenly appeared in, in Portland, Oregon. And I just thought Jesus really upset these religious people like. Am I missing something? Like, if Jesus came today, would I fundamentally miss who he was and what he said he came to do? Because he's obsessed with this thing called the kingdom of God. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around the kingdom of God. And that phrase, the kingdom of God, is the thing that Jesus talked about the most. But to me, it just like went in one ear and came out the other because it's like the most Christian-y religious language. I don't don't know if you grew up with like uh, a relationship with that phrase did you uh the kingdom of god yeah yeah i heard it in a variety of contexts but i don't think i really started hearing it uh a lot until i went to the master's college i don't know okay. if you're familiar yeah. with john macarthur but oh, like i started hearing it there <laughs> i started hearing it there and then like i heard it a lot um in seminary so I don't really remember like my relationship with the phrase was before uh, college, but yeah. Yeah. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Yeah. What do you think John MacArthur thinks the kingdom of God means? Oh, the kingdom of God is, I'm thinking he would probably go into some lecture about how like there's a kingdom of now um, and then not yet. Yeah. And you would yeah. start talking about eschatology and like yeah. things to come, yep. like maybe people in the church. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. OK, so that's that's very similar to what happened to me at my Bible college was I would ask this one professor every day, well, what is the kingdom of God? And it kind of became a joke almost. And he would say it's, you know, wherever the rule and reign of God is in your heart. And I would say, but what does that mean? You know, because yeah. <laughs> here, here I am being told this is Jesus' most important message. And then I get this weird, bland, religious answer that means nothing. And I am, like, mm. terrified that I am missing out because I am. I don't fundamentally understand what this thing that Jesus is obsessed with is about. Now, looking back, it's like it's because I only had certain people interpreting that phrase for me, right? If you talk to anybody yeah. who comes from like a liberation theology background, right? Or anybody who comes from like the black church, like they will say it is exactly what Jesus said. And so when I went back and started reading these passages, like Luke four is like one of the central passages that I sort of frame my book around. 
And it and it's when Jesus came to announce his ministry in the temple, and he reads this scroll from Isaiah, Isaiah 58, and it says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and it has, you know, is giving me, what does it say, to proclaim good, good news, news to, to the, the poor. poor and to yeah. set at liberty those who are captives, to, you know, recover sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. Yes. And, like, that's it. That's the that's the kingdom of God coming to earth is Jesus says, you know, like, I want there to be good news for the poor. I want the people in prison to be set free. I want those who are suffering physically and mentally to be well. And I want those who are oppressed to not be oppressed anymore for the oppressors to stop it. And it's just actually so, of course, there's like spiritual benefits to that, but it's so immediate and so physical and has like, I can look around my neighborhood right now and just be like, yes, Jesus, come right now. We need you in all of these spaces. You know what I mean? Like if you Mm -hmm. are, if you are poor in Portland right now, like there is so much bad news you have to deal with, right? Mm, Like how are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to get food for your kids? There's no school right now because of this global pandemic. Like how are you going to be able to like keep your kids occupied while also keeping them inside this tiny apartment where there's all these other people, You, you know what I mean? Like Mm-hmm. There, there is this real need for actual good news for people. And that's, yeah. what the, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's not some esoteric religious language where Jesus is in your heart. It's like, no, it's this, it's this absolute reordering of the way the world works. And God is saying, this was not, this is not my dream, how things are right now. My mm-hmm. dream is for a world where everybody experiences shalom. And the only way that dream will ever be realized is if those who are suffering the most, those who are the most marginalized, if they begin to flourish, then everyone will flourish. And that's my dream. That's the kingdom of God come to earth. And to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so exciting and so <laughs> vibrant. And so, you, you know what, it means something to me today. And and it, looking back, it's just really sad that even though I asked that question all the time, nobody was able to give me that kind of immediacy. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, because if I had asked like the same question, they would have given me like the same pat answer. Uh, and yeah, I wouldn't have been satisfied either. <laughs> yeah. And so what does that mean when those of us who are truly asking, you know, for a while, I just felt like, is there something wrong with me? Because I just am not getting this. And now I look at that as a gift, you know, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of people when you start to experience some of that dissonance right between what we say and how it actually impacts our lives a lot of people just walk away from the faith and, and I don't really yeah I don't really blame them for that to be perfectly nope, honest I don't either because <laughs> it's really uncomfortable to sit in the dissonance and to constantly be told there's something wrong with you if you aren't just buying this hook line and sinker mm-hmm. you know yeah but yeah. luckily for me I just kept doing that and then uh I was able to learn from other people and you know go outside my tradition a little bit which you know, going full circle has made me be like, the Bible is wild. The Bible is still really important to me, but I think fundamentally, I don't think I can come up with all the right answers or all the right doctrine when I read it. Instead, when I read it, I'm just like, okay, I'm prepared to be very challenged because <laughs> I am somebody who comes from the dominant culture in my culture. Yeah. I am somebody who has struggled with religiosity. You know, I am somebody who has a hard time expecting or uh, being ready to see God work in my enemies, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I'm somebody who doesn't 
want to forgive people who have harmed me or my neighbors. And so, yeah, like when I read the Bible, it's extremely challenging. Uh, but in a way that I, I trust is going to end up making me someone who is better able to listen to the Holy Spirit, to, to love other people better. Mm. I think that's my aim right now with the Bible. I would say that's a really good aim. Um, and so you mentioned uh, being part of the dominant culture and um, like learning from the dominant culture, uh, primarily how to read the Bible. Um, so I'm curious, uh, who are some of the people or um, I guess maybe other voices that are like not part of the dominant culture um, that have helped you um, as you are re reading the Bible and you're you're finding yourself challenged? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think what's been helpful for me to start off, you know, there's a theologian that everybody always talks about, and, and that's Walter Brueggemann. And, and he is somebody who comes from the dominant culture, but I think he's a great gateway into saying this is not all there is. There's so much more than we've been taught. And, and Brueggemann really helped me to understand um the Old Testament, because I think it's easy when you're on this journey to be like, Jesus, I love Jesus. Everything he says is so revolutionary, it's so radical. And then, <laughs> you know, you can sort of be like, I don't even know what to do with the Old Testament because I grew up with it and I don't even know how to deal with it anymore, you know? And so Brunon yeah. is somebody that really made me love the Old Testament and, and to see um, some of these patterns. And in and, and the first part of my book, I talk about this value of affluence and how it has really shaped American life and American values. And I, I really rely on Brueggemann a lot because he is the one who really says, like, much of the Old Testament is really obsessed with economics. And that's truly what it is talking about most of the time. You know, but when I was in Bible college, it's like, no, it's all about the Israelites not listening mm. to God and they worshiped idols. And yeah. Brueggemann, Brueggemann's like, yes, they worshiped idols. But look at what they were doing before they started bowing down to worship idols. If you look at the prophets, if you look at all the stories of the kings the people started to forget the poor and they started to hoard for themselves and they started to do all this stuff. And that was the first sign they had stopped listening to God, not bowing down you know, to an idol, but they had forgotten the poor and they had forgotten to take care of the triad of the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And, it, and I was just like, oh my gosh. And he also really says like, you know, the Old Testament is really a story of Pharaoh versus Yahweh, right? This predatory mm -hmm. economy that exploits other people and is never satisfied versus this economy of Yahweh, which is all about, um, well, like Jubilee, right? Like restoring wealth to people, almost like reparations, like every yeah. seven years and every 50 years and, and taking care of people and always being close to your neighbors and seeing them and really relying on God to take care of you instead of hoarding. Mm. And I'm just like, what? What? You know, I've read these, <laughs> I've, I've read these so often. And I just never got any of that. So Brueggemann really was a great way to deal with that. And, and again, in the first section of my book, talking about affluence is also a great way to introduce this concept to people who maybe, like me, come from this, this evangelical background, which is really obsessed with individualism, which, you know, kind of goes into the next value of autonomy. But they really work together when it comes to talking about money. I think you mentioned a little bit ago, like, how we can just breeze over some of the really hard Versus about money, you know, yes. in scripture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we do. And, and I think what's really fascinating is I 
I actually don't really want to talk about the individual choices we make with money, right? Mm -hmm. Like if somebody buys a latte when they have student loans and they're a terrible person, right? Like just really, really this hyper individualistic look at money. And instead, again, going back to what Brueggemann is talking about, which is more of looking at these systems of economics that exploit some people and, you know, make other people profit. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I was trying to do and, and how I want to actually go about reading scripture is instead of just looking for a verse that means something to me, you know, that I could write in my journal in the morning and feel mm. good about myself, right? I need to kind of take a step back and learn from more collectivist cultures and a collectivist way of reading and saying, what is this telling me about the way the world is organized and about structures and systems? And and where do I fit in those? How do I see those affecting us? Um, does that make sense? So instead of like this yeah. hyper individualist approach, because People, I mean, there's so many different verses about money. You can take an individual verse about money in the Bible and basically justify whatever you want to do. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so from communism to libertarianism to anything in between. To like, all of it. Yeah. Like, all yeah. of it. The whole range of human experience when it comes to wealth is in there. So so I think really what we do need to do is, is take a more holistic view of wealth and economics and say, God doesn't want a world where some people don't have enough and others have more than they need. You know, simple yeah. as that. And yes, that's challenging because yes, that's the world we live in. But mm-hmm. I don't think we get to just take a single verse and say this, then this is what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I think they call that uh, proof texting <laughs> is a fancy word for it. Uh, I know. And I still, I, w- I grew up doing it and even... Now, you know, a lot of progressives do it too, right? And so it's just yeah. really interesting trying to be like, ah, I just, you gotta, gotta, if you really want to respect the scriptures, you can't just go around throwing out one verse. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's been a challenge for me because I have that impulse, definitely. Mm, me too. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Walter Brueggemann. Oh, right. Uh, great uh, Old, Tem- Old Testament or Hebrew scripture scholar. Um, I'm trying to get out of the habit of saying Old Testament, yeah. uh, but it's hard because it's it was so like, hard. yeah, that's what I grew up with, Old Testament and New Testament. Well, Hebrew uh, but, scriptures is better, right? Is that better? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. And yeah, so I don't want to just, you know, <laughs> source a white dude because... Yeah, but he was my gateway into a lot of other people. And I'll just, you know, rattle off a few names really quickly and and ones I really drew upon for my most recent book. But I would say um, Randy Woodley is an indigenous theologian who talks about the community of creation. And and so it's a reframing of this kingdom of God and God's shalom that I think was so powerful for me and just really helped me to go deeper into that concept and to really see how revolutionary a community that is following the creator God is supposed to look like. It's incredible. Um, And I would also say, you know, Womanist Midrash, right, by Dr. Willa Gaffney is incredible for, again, the Old Testament. It's a hard read, but really life-giving. If, again, you're someone like me who has been like, I don't think these women in the Bible were treated very well, right? But if you're (laughs) a biblical... If you're a biblical literalist, you're really not supposed to bring up those questions. And she just uh, kind of yeah. delves straight into the horror of it. Mm. And uh, it, yeah, it's really challenging, but it's so incredibly life-giving 
um, to hear her sort of unpack these deeper stories. And um, I think she also is highlighting how a patriarchal interpretation has um, led to death for, for many of us. And so um, looking at this womanist interpretation can really be life-giving in its own way. So I think she's amazing. I think Lisa Sharon Harper is a wonderful theologian who focuses a lot on shalom work, but she is able to sort of interpret scripture and bring it immediately into present day justice issues. So she's someone that for me, her work is always relevant because she's always at the forefront of talking about issues. Um, and then my friend, Kelly Nikandeha, she's like my actual really good friend, but she just wrote a book on the 12 women of Exodus. And it is like, a game changer for me just talking about how women have been a part of the hebrew scriptures and you know our stories are complex but we have this call to liberate um i think she what did she say plunder egypt liberate moses i i, I don't know it's, i don't know i haven't gotten to that book yet oh it's so good <laughs> yeah it's so good and again it's that thing of reclaiming these hebrew scriptures the things that are a little bit scarier for me to delve into and to just sort of be able to take a deep breath and say i think this is better news than i ever thought it could be mm. because if you you know in my denomination i i was not allowed to preach you know i was not allowed yeah. you know i'm a second class citizen and, and i'm like a straight white girl you know so think about people who don't even have what i have so so yeah i, I would say i would say those are some of my top-notch people that i keep rereading their works so i also really love willie jennings um but some of his stuff can be really hard to get into but the christian imagination if you have the brain space to read it it's a uh, woo awesome it's uh, it's a, it's a <laughs> awesome um yeah, well, um, most of those books are on my list, and I'm gradually uh, trying to uh, bring them into my house and onto my uh, bookshelf so I could read them. But uh, yeah, so um, I think we're coming up on time in a little bit, but anything else that you would uh, encourage us to look for as we read the Bible? Yeah, I, I think, so I, I talked a little bit about you know, seeing affluence in the Bible and then a little bit about autonomy and, and not reading the Bible through this individualistic lens. And the other two sections of my book are about safety and power. And, um, you know, safety, I, I really do look at it in this light of it's a really natural longing we have. And yet if we are going to follow Jesus, especially as people who maybe come from privileged or dominant culture backgrounds, like safety uh, is not something we're ever promised and, and we're going to have to get used used to that idea that it's going to be uncomfortable um, to be obedient to the scriptures. And that's something I really have carried with me from growing up in my community is this the sense that I don't want to just read the Bible. I want to read the Bible and actually have a response to it that changes my actual life. Mm, and yeah. so I think that goes into that last value of power. And it's so important, you know, interpersonally for us to all start to recognize what power we bring into our relationships. And the same thing in the text, you know, we can look at the power differentials inside the stories in the text, and then we need to be aware of our own power and the place we're coming from as we read the scriptures. You know, one of the stories I tell in my book is about the verse from Jeremiah 29, 11. Mm. And, uh, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And seeing that at like 
somebody's third beach house, you know, like on this <laughs> the lighthouse and just being really struck with like, you know, I don't really think that verse was meant for somebody's third beach house. Like, I'm, not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is somebody's third beach house. That's how many. Wow. And really wow. like looking at the context of that verse and the power dynamics of that verse, you know, it was being written to a people who had lost everything, who had been decimated by this other empire. Right. And now they were having to like restart over in this other place and, you know, the prophets of God are just saying, like, God hasn't forgotten you, even though everybody's going to tell you that he has. And we hope that you start to, like, grow gardens and, you know, build your houses and bless your neighbors, because mm-hmm. eventually these conquerors are going to be blessed by you and you're thriving. And just thinking, like, in that story, I'm the conqueror people, you know, I'm the person that that ver- that promise of flourishing is not for me, but you know what it is for me is this idea that when we welcome in people who have experienced forced migration, I'm somebody who's lived and worked with refugees for a long time now, so that really stands out to me. When we help them create spaces where they can start to rebuild their lives and flourish, then our entire community is going to be blessed as a result of people Mm. being able to feel safe, to grow their gardens, to work on their homes, you know, to be able to afford the rent. And then I feel like my entire neighborhood is going to be blessed if I work towards the flourishing of those who have been forced to move here, you know, because all this horrible stuff for them. So I'm like, I think there's real, there's a real space to have these verses be important to us, but it's fascinating to see what happens when we totally take them out of context and we take our own power out of the equation, how we can take that verse and it ends up meaning something it was never supposed to mean. And so I guess that's just something I would say to people is learning how to be aware of power is really hard, especially if you're like me, you know, middle class, white, all that. We're, we're really taught to downplay our power. Mm-hmm. Um, but recognizing what we have, we don't have to be scared because in the long run, Jesus really is good news for everybody. But we will maybe have to give up some things, right? And Jesus mm-hmm. is good and equitable kingdom. But what are we going to return in? You know, what are we going to get in return? We're going to see true flourishing and true shalom. Right. And that's what we all really want. I think at the end of the day, I know that's what I want. And and reading the Bible helps keep that flame of hope alive for me because, you know, right now it's kind of extremely hard out there. It is very hard. (laughs) Right. It's an understatement. That is is quite an understatement. My gosh. gosh. (laughs) Well, this has been a wonderful, uh, just to, uh, hear and learn about reading the Bible in different contexts with different values. Um, and people can uh, find you on Twitter if they're not already following you, right? Yes, I'm very spicy. I'm, I'm on there as D.L. Mayfield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, D.L. Mayfield. Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes. All right. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on. And um, wow, I look forward to your next book. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us, a show where everyone is welcome to God Talk.
Find us on the web at seminary.show, on Twitter at seminaryshow, and or send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Oh, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give us a rating. Thanks again, and catch you next time.